0: From the studio of KPSU Portland, in an association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni, as well as local historians.
1: Welcome, I'm Lily. And I'm Madeline. Today we're interviewing Dr. Tim Garrison who is the department chair of the history department at Portland State University. He received his PhD at the University of Kentucky and he specializes in history of the Native American South, American legal history, and the history of the removal crisis. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you, good afternoon.
1: Um, So to start, could you just introduce yourself and tell a bit about how you got to Portland State and your role here?
2: Okay. Okay. I got here in 1997. And um, when I was in graduate school, I was working on my dissertation, and at the same time I was doing that, I was applying for jobs all over—not over the country, all over the world. So I had an interview here at Portland—so the job for Portland State was advertised as U.S. legal history. And I applied for it, but my specialty is really a kind of niche of American Indian legal history. Um, so I applied, and I flew out here in February, and it was a beautiful, clear day. <laughs> they, tricked, they tricked me. <laughs> you got the one day in February. Exactly. Um, and I uh, had a nice interview, and uh, I had never been to the Pacific Northwest before. I, I think the closest I had been was to Yellowstone or something like that. So I, I was impressed uh, with the area. Um, and I went back home, and my next interview was going to be in Minot, North Dakota, Minot State University. And um, that didn't seem too appealing to me <laughs> compared to Portland. And, uh, and I also was coming up, I think, on an interview at a university in New Zealand. Oh. Yeah. And, um, which would have been a wonderful place to be probably, but I knew my family, it would just break their hearts if I— Moved uh, that far away, and at the time I had a one-year-old son, so or maybe he wasn't even one yet. So I would have been taking grandbaby <laughs> away from the grandparents uh, to New Zealand. That that would have killed them. So it turned out this was to to be an excellent place uh, for me to have a career. Um, so you know to answer your question how i ended up here is they had a job <laughs> and, and i needed crazy. one All right uh, what else what else was i supposed to say about that question
1: uh let's see this could you give us a bit about like your background your school dissertation how you got your interest and stuff like that
2: yeah. well i started at happy Line kindergarten in 19 19- No, <laughs> 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 oh, i grew up in north georgia uh, which is um uh, territory where uh, Creek Indians and Cherokee Indians used to reside, mostly the Creeks up in North Georgia, except for a very, very little piece up in the very top of North Georgia. Um, and, you know, went through high school not knowing what I wanted to do, so there's a good lesson to people out there. Is it, if it takes you a long time to figure out what you want to do with your life, that's okay. Uh, went to college, didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, my dad was an accountant. So he w- he thought it'd be a good idea for me to be an accounting major, which I was. And after working as an accountant for uh, one summer, <laughs> I hated that and bailed out of that. And I uh, tried to figure out what to do next and decided to go to law school, which is another lesson for students here is don't fall into default scenarios. You know, do a little more research about uh, careers and graduate degrees and so forth. At the time, I was young and naive, and I didn't know, I, you know, I'd heard of medical school and law school, and that was about it. So decided to go to law school. I think I had an inkling of an idea that I wanted to manage a small business uh, for my career, and it turns out that's what I'm doing now <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> in a roundabout way. Uh, I don't think they'd like me to call it a business, but essentially that is what I'm doing. I'm running a, a fairly large size operation up in the history department. And I uh, went to law school at Georgia, University of Georgia, a fine law school, <laughs> an excellent law school, and um, went back and practiced law in my hometown in Gainesville, Georgia, which is about 60 miles northeast of Atlanta. Uh, practiced law for six or seven years, and uh, from day one, never liked it. <laughs> I... Uh, didn't particularly enjoy what clients were asking me to do my one of my best clients always used to say that you know it's it's my luck that i have the only honest lawyer in the world oh <laughs> right so people have oh, okay. lo- jokes about lawyers and so forth about uh, how crooked they are and so forth but it's you know it takes clients that want you who want you to do the nefarious things that's the reason some lawyers do them but I, I was unhappy. I, I was beginning to get a, a particularly bad view of of human nature. Um, I'd always been somewhat of an optimist about humans. Uh, but in in practicing law and getting to know people, I got to see a dark side of, of humanity that I didn't like. And it was a stressful job um, uh, practicing law. And uh, at the same time, my law firm was in turmoil. So at that point, when I was about— and, and, you know i was a 30 something years old 30 31 something i was going through life thinking oh only only 34 more years to retirement <laughs> oh, <laughs> right okay. which is no way to go through life so um i decided i was going to leave my firm and you know some of my friends who are practicing at other places we talked about going out and creating our own firm or thought about going out on my own but i i finally sat down and had a long talk with myself um about the future, or my future, and I decided um, I asked myself, "What what would I do if if there was if I had my choice and could do anything else in the world? What would I do?" And I decided I wanted to teach history, and uh, I had loved history from grammar school forward. Uh, at, if you'll come to the graduation ceremony on June. 15th? Is
0: that what In, uh, 15th. Yeah. 15th? Yeah. Right. we'll right. be there. Friday the 15th. Oh, yes. was it? Uh, 3, Three o'clock. In the Native 3 yeah. yes. Be there. Yes.
2: <laughs> I will have on my award from the Daughters of American Revolution okay. that I received in fourth grade. Oh. <laughs> the, the best best student in history award. So I, I had this inkling that I, that I loved history. And, and when I would get home from practicing law, you know, before I'd go to sleep, I'd read history as kind of my avocational reading. So I knew I loved history and wanted to do something with it. What I didn't know, and I hope I'm not going on too long here, what, yes. I, you know, what I didn't know was whether I wanted to teach in high school mm-hmm. or in college. I didn't want to have to deal with the discipline uh, you know that you have to deal with uh, teaching high school social studies yeah. and so forth. I was just not, uh, you know, uh, prepared to, to deal with that. So I decided, for that reason, and for also, I kind of saw myself tending toward a kind of scholarly mm-hmm. uh, future, to to go get my Ph.D. in history. And it turns out I was right, I've never had to deal, with, I never had disciplinary problems in college. I, I've never had to yell at you guys or or, or anything like that. But I, I uh, applied to the University of Georgia, history department, uh, into their master's program. And they wrote back and they sent a form letter that said something along the lines of, uh, we're not gonna accept you because there's no jobs in history right now. Oh. It was really, You know, and I should remind you that I went to Georgia undergrad and Georgia law school. So I had a lot of affinity for Georgia. So I was very disappointed. The next closest university was Clemson. And I wrote that, or I called them and drove up and met with them. And they convinced me that I might have a future in history. Now, remember, I was an accounting major. So... I wasn't accepted, uh, except on a probationary status. I had to go in and show that I could do the work for the first semester. And I did, and they gave me assistantship, and, and uh, then I had to decide where to get my Ph.D. I looked at several places, and I um, visited the University of Kentucky, among other places. And I was in the, walking down the hall, and this short woman came up to me and said, are you Tim Garrison? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, come in here. I want to talk to you. And uh, she took me in this room and sat me down. And with this older gentleman, who I didn't know he was, who he was either, sit down. We want to talk to you. And it turns out uh, that was Theta Perdue and Mike Green, who became my advisors. And uh, Theta is the queen of Cherokee historians. And Mike is the king of Creek historians, Creek Indian historians. And they said, you know, we know you have a legal background there's really a need um, in the history of Southern Indians, Southeastern Indians for someone who can talk and write about the legal history of American Indians of the South. And my master's had been in Anglo German relations. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got an accounting degree. I've got a law degree. I've got a master's in Anglo German relations. I have no, I have no, no background whatsoever on Southern Indians until I get into my PhD. And, um, It turns out that they were right. There was a niche uh, for the legal history of Southern Indians. And then, as I said earlier, began applying for jobs and ended up here. Is that a long enough story for you? Yes,
0: that's good. (laughs) So right now your main focus is Native history, and you're currently working on an article on Native Americans and tornadoes, which (laughs) Lily and I got to read a draft of. Do you want to talk a bit about that and how that specific environmental event um, is interpreted and
2: so, you know, extreme environments, you know, that's a hot topic today in in academia. In fact, uh, the dean created a cluster hire uh, series for people who do extreme environments. That's not why I wrote this article. (laughs) But it is interesting that I'm doing something that's hot for once. um, The reason I got interested in Indians and tornadoes is because... Um, and I can prove this because I have a book that <laughs> that says this. My hometown of Gainesville is the only town uh, in history that we know of that was flattened twice by tornadoes. And so <laughs> that was in my background, 1905, I think, and 1936. Uh, hundreds of people killed, sadly. Um, when I was a kid, a tornado went through my front yard, And uh, actually, that was when I was in high school. And then back in sixth or seventh grade, I remember sitting in the middle school and we watched a tornado go all across town. So I've had a lifelong um, obsession or fear of tornadoes. (laughs) So being someone who does Indian legal history, but also some uh, ethno-history, kind of cultural history of Native people, I, for some reason, a few years ago, two or three years ago, started wondering, what did Indians think about tornadoes? And um started looking around, and it turns out no one has written anything about this. No one's written about tornadoes or hurricanes or anything like these extreme environment environmental issues with native people, at least in the South, which is which is what I'm interested in. Um so the question is <laughs> How do you write about tornadoes and Indians? And so, uh, you saw what I've done. I, I looked at this kind of linguistically. I looked at it through oral tradition. I looked at uh, actual accounts of tornadoes. And the last thing that you haven't, you didn't read in this article, which I haven't gotten to yet, is right now in the in the present day, the um, Indian nations or the governments are providing subsidies for people to build tornado shelters in Oklahoma. So they can protect themselves, and so the tribe, the tribes today have been really concerned and interested with protecting people from these these events. Now, the the problem with them it's like is looking for evidence. Um, it's like looking for the uh, I think I mentioned this in the article. It's like looking for uh, a eyewitness account of a shooting star, mm-hmm. right? Because they only last, and so you know they typically only uh, last a couple of minutes, and in some cases, the big famous ones in less for an hour at the most. They don't last very long. Um, and now, you know, we have tornado chasers and people like that who go out and the, the news people are always out trying to photograph them and so forth. So I have a pretty good record uh, in the 20th century uh, about tornadoes. But in the colonial period, American colonial period, in the pre-colonial period, we have nothing. So if you were up in my office, you saw the book on my desk about that big. It's It's a collection of every tornado that's ever uh, been witnessed, and there's nothing there earlier than 1611, mm-hmm. and all of those tornadoes that were sighted are, a lot of them are really waterspouts, but they're typically up in New England. So in the South, there's hardly, there's no record whatsoever in that period before Indian removal, and then really, you only start finding accounts in the late 19th century. Now, one problem with that is language, and that the word tornado doesn't become popular until the middle of the nineteenth century or so. So you can't go do a you know a Google search for tornado uh in the seventeenth century. You're not gonna find anything. So you look for things like <clears throat> you know, big wind or mm-hmm. property destruction or things like that. Um I, I'm not sure. Sh- I'm not sure I can define what my thesis is, but it's something along the lines of, you know, these are extreme uh, environmental events, um, catastrophes, in a lot of cases, and they uh, impacted people's lives, and Native people um, and their governments uh, uh, have tried to deal with them and ameliorate the consequences of tornadoes. So to some extent it's about agency you know, and a particularly recent native agency about trying to deal with uh, climate change, too, because supposedly, if I understand science, <clears throat> the little that I do, uh, the more the earth warms, the more of these catastrophic events we're going to have. So tornadoes are going to continue to be a big problem. So that's where we are. So right now I'm trying, still trying to find um, tornadoes in the, <laughs> in the colonial period. It's kind of hard to do.
1: And um, the article uses ethno-history, which you mentioned briefly. Yeah. Could you explain a bit about that form of history?
2: Well, <clears throat> ethno-history is a fairly recent in historical terms development. It really emerges in the middle of the 20th century when anthropologists were being called to testify in Indian claims cases to try to prove that they had been um, on a particular uh, area of land historically so they could— Make a claim to have the land returned to them. Uh, anthropologists were called into court to testify in these cases because they were the only experts on Indians at the time, right? And it, anthropologists didn't really—I don't want to generalize too much because Professor Butler up in the anthropology department might come down here and get me. But you know, anthropologists were typically uh, trying to provide kind of ethnologies of the way a people was were living at a particular time, typically the present. Um, they were not, back at that time, particularly interested in how that culture had changed over time, um, and they weren't, you know, their main source of, uh, of evidence was uh, field work, going out and, and living or, or uh, interviewing Native people, and, and eth- eth- ethno-history came out of the study of American Indians. Now, ethnohistory can examine any people at any time, but that's how it began. Um well what they didn't do is or care that much particularly about was how culture changed over time, and that's what we do as historians. We study change over time or persistence over time, so at the same time, historians weren't particularly interested that much at that time in culture you know it was about history was about politics and war diplomacy, those kind of things so it was this kind of um fortunate merging of anthropology and history or ethnology and history where we're interested in culture and how it changes over time or how it remains the same over time. So that's a, a rough definition of what ethno is. We typically use a broader uh, array of sources than you do in history, which is document-driven, right? Um, instead, ethno and, and ethnohistory's had an influence on history in that way, where historians are now more willing to use a, a broader array of sources, like photographs or art, things of that nature. But uh, ethnohistorians have relied a lot on archaeology, on language, right? If you looked at this article I wrote, I was trying to look at how different Native peoples in the South defined a tornado, and it turns out they don't really have a word for tornado. They're words for like wind or air. Um, And the way they're exaggerated um, shows that it's uh, something unusual, something different from just regular air or wind. Um, so looking a lot at language, you, you know, Professor Extel uh, that I had you read uh, essentially argued that you should become obsessed with the language of the people you're studying. Um, uh, and also, I think ethno-historians are also very interested in the documents, um, but reading them in, in a way that historians might. And um, the example I usually give is you know, the the uh, the folks that are with say Soto or or some English soldier who's with a, a military expedition is required to write reports back to headquarters about how the military expedition's going. And they would say something like, Well, we burned down a cornfield and we burned down towns. And what ethnohistorians historians will do is take a document like that, which is written for the purpose of telling the general back at the headquarters what the army was doing and, uh, and in fact using it for a different purpose which is to tell you about the culture of the people that they're encountering so you know this is a very silly simple example but if if the you know the commander in the field says we burned down cornfield, well we know then you know ethno-historically those people were growing corn and uh politicians and lawyers in the 19th century as justifications for taking Indian land would argue that they were wild hunter gatherers you know who roamed all over the earth well (laughs) there's plenty of evidence to show from their own records that is from westerners or southerners own records that they knew that these people were sedentary agriculturalists so it's it's hypnohistory is a kind of methodology Mm -hmm. right and um Uh, uh, like an emerging of ethno, excuse me, of history and anthropology. There's a cute story about the history of of ethno-history, which is, there's a big fight for a long time about the journal Ethno-History. So there's the American Society for Ethno-History, which is a professional organization. They produce a journal called Ethno-History. It's a big fight about whether, and you know, anthropologists use MLA, Right for for citation, and we use Chicago manual footnotes. Right, mm-hmm. well, big fight over which are we going to do, which one they're going to use, and ultimately they agreed that well, in the journal, if you're an anthropologist, you can use MLA, and if you're a historian, you can use footnotes. I'm so honest. if you look at that journal, you'll see them both in there, which is kind of cool. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: Chicago is superior, though. So much, no doubt. <laughs> Spoken as yeah, true superior. historians. It's
0: so much easier. guess.
2: Oh, Well, you know, not to not to get Professor Butler mad at me again, but you know, MLA MLA does disrupt your reading. Right. You know, you got a big parenthesis with a citation there in the middle of a sentence. So, yeah, I'm I'm with you on the footnotes.
0: (laughs) So, in addition to your research on tornadoes, you're working on a new book called "Sunset in the East: Reconsidering the Trail of Tears." Oh boy! Speak a little bit about that.
2: Oh boy. So, um, this is a kind of old man project. Um, <laughs> over the years, I've had a lot of articles published in, uh, or a lot of kind of book chapters and articles published in books that I fear no one has ever read <laughs> <laughs> because these are put in anthologies and, uh, they get set aside in the library and I'm not sure. So I've always been, I've always been skeptical or sad that I'd written some really good stuff, I thought, that no one had ever read, and there's a couple of historians who, kind of in the twilight of their career, um, have gathered articles like that and put them together into into a book. So, what I wanted to do before I retired was to do that, was to gather all these articles I'd written about um, Indian removal and put them in in one book, and lo and behold, I got a, a Email one day from the uh, one of the editors at Louisiana State University press and she said, I don't know if you've uh, noticed this, but you've written a lot of articles about how uh, Cherokees and other Indian tribes make decisions, and how those decisions take them off in one path or other, like you know when I thought about it, that was true. I had done that uh, I'm not sure I realized that that's what I was intending to do I, the, what I was doing all along in my career was, I would wonder about a question, and then I would go start researching and writing and write a write an article. And a good example of that is in the uh, this book we just did called "The Native South." I wondered uh, in the Indian Removal Bill of eighteen thirty how popular that was in the South. I knew that the bill had passed the uh, Congress or the House of Representatives by only five votes. But I didn't know I was curious about how popular it was in the South. And, you know, we didn't have a opinion polling back then. So you just couldn't go look at the you know, the New York Times poll or the Gallup poll and see who was in favor of the law or not. So I wondered about that and um so I I went and wrote an article about it, you know, based on newspaper accounts and speeches and so forth. And I couldn't get to a, you know, any kind of definitive numbers about the answer to that question, but it was pretty clear that getting the Indians out of the South was very popular among the white population. So that, that's an example of just, I had a question I was curious about and just went and wrote an article about it. So I had all these articles like that, but I never really connected this notion of they, people were making decisions or the Cher- or Cherokee leaders or Indian leaders were making decisions um, that affected their destiny. So I pulled all the articles out from my uh, CV and lined them up in chronological order. And I'm like, whoa, there's actually a book here. Um, And so we talked about it. We agreed to do this. So what I'm going to try to do is to pull this together um, in a way that emphasizes Cherokee agency, which is another word I've used already, and to give them credit, not only for their smart decisions, but also credit for their bad decisions. So, you know, they made some unfortunate choices throughout their history that led them down the to the path that they followed. Um, and so when I've talked to this, to some other people, they get very worried <laughs> about doing that because kind of in the... During my career, in the way you deal with um, the history of American Indians is to, you know, it's very important to be really sensitive to that history and and to their choices, um, to almost to such an extent that people have been reluctant to be critical of their choices, right? And so that's what I'm going to do, which is a little scary. It's going to probably draw some criticism, but that's okay, I think. What I'm seeing now in American Indian history is the ability to do that right to to not only uh, recognize their contributions and uh, and you know praise them for their achievements and so forth but to actually to treat them the way we treat all other subjects of history right <laughs> in a critical uh straightforward way so I hope that's I hope I can get away with that <laughs> now what I have to do is fill in some chapters uh, along the way that will be some other decisions. one of them is I want to write a chapter on how the Cherokees um, reacted or responded to the civilization program which the United States required the uh, Indian tribes to embrace you know Anglo-American ways. I want to look at that. Uh, carefully, I want to look at about their at their decision to side with the Confederacy in the Civil War. Uh, so I've got three or four chapters like that I need to fill in, but it should should be a fairly coherent story I think when I get when I get through with it. Sunset in the East, the title I thought that was a clever title, and and uh, until I realized that there are other books with that title, oh, so we're okay. going to have to come up with another one. Okay.
1: <laughs> when do you think that'll be coming out?
2: Um. Hopefully before I croak, <laughs> but probably three or four years, I, you know, uh, I don't think we've talked about the fact that I'm chair of the department right now, and, yes, and uh, kind of, yeah, being chair of the department slows down your research I quite a imagine. bit, yeah, yeah, sure does.
1: Uh, let's see. And We also had to ask, um, like, you mentioned a bit about being a lawyer, but does that, imagine that comes into play, like, your experience when doing legal history?
2: Yeah, it does. Um, so, what happened was after Anglo German relations, right? Yeah. <laughs> I finished my master's. Um, so, what happened? I was so frustrated and so I hated the law so much. But after my bad experience of practicing law, I want to get away as far away as a, from it as I could. And that's how I ended up in Anglo German relations. But after doing that, being away from practicing law a couple of years, I thought, boy, what a dummy, you know, you spent 10 years of your life doing law and, and you're not using it. And that's kind of another factor along with meeting Mike and Theta, that led me back to doing this, this kind of history. Um, So how does, how does it relate to my work? Well, I, what I've discovered is that there's a lot of common, uh, commonalities between being a lawyer and being a historian, right? If you think about it, you're presenting a case, right you're trying to corroborate evidence you're you know you're organizing evidence um, you're writing a argument a argument and narrative to try to prove something you know and I just, it just was really natural for me coming out of law into being a historian and I don't know if that shapes the way I think about history. Um, I've talked to students a lot about writing and and art making judgments about the people of the past, right? You know, there's this notion that we should be kind of Olympian and detached and, you know, look down and judge people from on high without any kind of uh, desire to judge people or to take a side. I I think coming out of the law probably made me more judgmental and more willing to criticize people of the past, of course, without, you know, committing presentism, right? But, you know, I think that's if you look at my writing, I think you'll see it's more argumentative, probably than than some other historians. And and you know, I was familiar with legal records and and, and documents and how to find them and find cases and so forth like that and trial records. So it, you know, it's been it was very helpful to my career. It gave me a career, really. So I can't, I don't, you know, I don't regret going to law school or being a lawyer because. It got me to where I am today. I just wouldn't do it again. Yeah. <laughs> right.
1: Um, so my other question is, like, the field of Native American history has changed uh, a great deal just in, like, the past decade. Could right. you talk a bit about that?
2: Well, you know, we've been talking in class about that yes. about <laughs> the last 100 years or 120 years or so, how it changed. I've seen it change a lot, and just so anyone who's paying attention here, uh, what changed is kind of the subjects of that history and the role that Native people play in that history rather than being, um, you know, in military history, rather than being the enemy Mm -hmm. or or the hostile, um, or rather than being the party on the other side of the treaty. uh, You know, now Indians play, you know, there are— uh, players and characters in every kind of story. Now, you know, every, whatever you can say about how history has become diversified in general in the last fifty or seventy-five years, you can say about Native American history, right? So there's just, hist- you know, there's writing about the history of women and men, and you know, all just all kind of uh, cultural. Um, History. The two things that have changed during my career in the last 10 or 20 years, I think, is that it is uh, more popular and more common. There's many more American Indian historians there were than when when I was in graduate school, which means those are people all out looking for dissertation topics, master's topics, book topics. So there's been this massive outpouring of scholarship on American Indians. And this is true even in the South. And I tell students at the beginning of classes in native history that it would be malpractice on my part to try to come in and teach Native American history. Right. right? I mean, I have to keep focused on the South. And even then, there's so many books and articles coming out on the South that I can't that I can't honestly keep up. Almost you can almost say that about the Cherokees alone. There's so many books coming out. So that that's I think that's one big change we're seeing. Um another would be what I was alluding to earlier is there is a uh, how should I put this, there's a, uh, a sense of freedom, I think, that's developing where you would be very careful when I started uh, in graduate school to criticize native decisions. So there's almost, you know, and this is definitely true back in the 70s that uh, because of civil rights movements and so forth, the Indians were often placed in history as merely victims of uh, Western imperialism and so forth. Um now I think we're moving toward a time where we can just tell the history without taking into account who the particular people are and worrying about the special sensitivities um about the way you write, you know, where you can actually criticize, you know, John Ross or somebody like that for a bad decision they made. You just didn't want to see that um when I was before I started doing this. Another thing, uh, another development I think you see happening is, um, which is wonderful, which is uh, Native people coming into history and writing writing history. Um, and I had always said, when that happens, I'll be ready to step aside. When there's Native students coming along to, to write this history, then it's time for me to retire. So hopefully we're getting there and then I, I would say the one other big change that i've seen and you guys are familiar with this and that is with professor barber mm-hmm. collaborating
1: yeah
2: right uh with uh, a nation to write history that is uh something that's developed during uh during during my career um you know where the historian is ex- expects to collaborate with the tribe to write that history and I think that's shocking to people who do other kinds of history, um, that you would give the, you know, the informant or give the, uh, the subject some say over what's being said. But I think in light of the, the history uh, of what happened, I, I think it makes sense to do that. So I'd say those are three or four big things that have changed during my career.
0: Um, so as department chair, do you have any advice for uh, history students or people starting their own career um, about how they to get most of their time, most out of their time here at PSU or wherever it is they're listening yeah. from?
2: Uh, what kind of career are you thinking about? Like as a, as a historian, like going a PhD or or just in general? Well, maybe we got two questions. So like what yeah. would I tell a Prospective history major. Yeah,
0: let will start, yeah. yeah. okay. start with that. Okay, let's start with that. There's a very stressed history 300 student sitting in your <laughs>
2: office. What would you tell them? <laughs> oh, tell them relax first. All right. Just a deep uh, breathing. Yeah, yeah deep breath. I breathe deeply. Yes, you'll be fine. Um, I think you know I'm the chair, and I know everyone, so I'm, I'm speaking from a different perspective. But um, um, I would I would hope students would try to take as many different professors as they could. I think probably there's a tendency in, in some students, they get someone, a professor they like, and they stick with them and take three or four or five classes with them, which, you know, that's fine. But I think, um, you know, the faculty in the department are so diverse and have so you know, not only different fields, but just different ways of thinking about things. You know, I'm sure there's probably not many people up there that think like I do. So it's probably a good idea not to just stick with me, right? You need to get some diversity of uh, of experience and, and uh, understanding of history, different interpretations of history, different ways of thinking about history. I think that'd be valuable to you. I, I also think, you know, for those uh, students who might be interested in being teachers at some point, um, I think, you know, in graduate school they don't give you a course on how to be a history teacher. At least they didn't give us one. Um, I kind of learned it on the fly, but, or Lily probably thinks I didn't learn it <laughs> at all. But um, I think what I did do was, I would say, you know, if you want to be a teacher, watch these folks. To, you know, when you're in class, obviously you got to listen to the content, pay attention to what's going on, but. Um, watch them as teachers you know what what works for you and what doesn't work and I always tell students I used to tell my son I learned how to do things by watching people do them poorly right you know I had a professor I worked for a professor when I was in graduate school before class he would take a trash can around and make everybody spit their gum out and uh yeah and I would I sat in the back and said I'm not going to do that, (laughs) you know. Whatever class I'm not going to do that, right? Exactly, you know. And from that on that day, I said it's important to teach uh, to treat students as adults, as as colleagues, as uh, we're at the same level. And I hope you get that when you're in my class. Yeah, Yeah. that you know, I'm not above you, right? We're we're together learning together. So, um, but that came from just watching teachers do really dumb things right? and so that's what I would say if you want to be a teacher watch these folks right and watch, you know on the positive side I had a professor named Don McHale at Clemson who was extremely organized in his lectures and I know some people he did he taught German history I know some people are probably a little bored with the way he lectured but I was fascinated uh, by the material but in the way that he presented in such an organized fashion, I learned to try to be more or organized in the way I taught, believe it or not, <laughs> right? So um, that's another thing I would tell students to do is pay attention not just to what they're saying but how they're, how they're teaching. Um, you know, get, get as many experiences as you, as you can uh, as a student and think broadly. I think um, our job, as teachers, is to not teach you Native American legal history or the history of the South. Our job is to inspire curiosity, right? I can't tell you everything about, you know, the history of the Creek Indians, but hopefully I can give you a little something to read or I can mention a little anecdote or something like that where you'll go, ooh, that's interesting. I think I'll go read more about it later, right? And that's what I feel like my job is. I I used to worry that I was not getting through the entire class all my, my outline the entire class I was not getting through everything I was supposed to teach in the term then I finally realized no one's going to remember all this stuff right 10 years from now but they might remember that one little story I told or they went off and read another book about it and then that got them interested in something else and on down the line where you it's so so to me it's all about a lifetime of learning that's really what we're what we're here about I know that's graduation time but people talk about that but it is true it's true uh going off to do history like uh, if you wanted to be a history professor obviously you have to specialize I think uh, for sure and if you want to be a historian of um uh Germany you know you need to really become adept at the German language so you know specialize in language are very important I think if you want to go on to be a uh, history professor, and uh, of course, become a good writer. Yeah. yeah, work on your writing, write, 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 and then edit, 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 edit.
1: Mm-hmm. I already kind of answered the second part, which was just like, what advice do you give to graduating people that want to go get PhDs or master's? Or yeah,
2: I, th- I think that's it. Yeah. Um, you know. Don't panic um even even if you're going to a master's program it's never too early to start thinking about um an area where you want to do research or a particular archive and if you're if you're on that from day one you're going to finish a lot a lot sooner we just had um you know we had these external reviewers of the history department on campus right and well one of the things they wrote in their report was that it's taking too long for graduate students to get through the program, and um, part of that is, I think, um, it's taking students a long time to figure out what they want to do for their master's thesis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always tell students if you can if you can nail that topic down early, and hopefully an archive you can work out of. And then you can convince your professors. where you have these seminars that you can write sections of your thesis yeah. for, for your <laughs> research. Do that. Right, right. Uh, you're going to get out of here sooner and, and, and move on up the ladder. Um, but I, I I think that I think that's I've pretty much covered it, what you need to do.
1: Um. So is there anything else you'd like to add or any questions you have, any? I don't have anything else. Yeah. Uh, anything else you'd like to add?
2: Oh, I don't know.
1: <laughs> What's your favorite Star Trek? Episode? I, was just ask yeah. that. <laughs> I was just gonna ask
2: my favorite Star Trek. I think of the I think I don't know what it's called, but I think the one um where they go into opposite uh mirror, universes mirror. or whatever Spock has a little goatee. <laughs> That's
0: mirror mirror. Yeah. Mirror
2: mirror, is that yes. what it is? Yeah, yeah right. You I I've told you me. Lily, the only I don't care about you know the next generation or whatever. Yeah. I only watched the original.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've only watched
2: the original, but I'm watching Deep Space Nine now. Oh yeah, so I never.
1: It's good. It's very different.
2: Yeah, I just, don't. I don't know why. Why I couldn't get beyond. Uh, yeah. Of course, you know McCoy's from Georgia, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes, that's why. <laughs> I had to get in a, a yeah. little pitch there. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say though, my favorite show right now is Gunsmoke. So. Oh, I
0: haven't seen that
2: one. <laughs> I haven't seen it either. Yeah. It's a west Western, of course.
0: Yeah. Well, I've been watching Westworld. Which I oh, think that been sounds been
2: good. Oh, I heard I'm not old enough to watch that.
0: <laughs> it's too, occasion- bu- too
2: much violence <laughs> I think it's and too sex. <laughs> it's
0: been making me occasionally start talking in a, in a southern accent, oh, which hmm. is really weird. Oh, yeah, right, so I think I'm watching so much of it.
2: There's southerners in Westworld.
0: There's some of them. They're
2: robots. So. <laughs> southern robots. <laughs> oh, southern robots. Well, maybe I should. Well, maybe I'll watch it after all. Yeah. now. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, thank, thank you. you so much. You're yeah.
2: welcome. Thank you all for being so hospitable. Oh, I you. hope I, I know I was boring, but no, I was too boring. It was very <laughs> okay. Come see us in the history department. Yes. yes. Sign so up. Take you Take you're, yeah. take eight take eight history classes a quarter. Yes, <laughs>
1: yes do that. <laughs> Beyond footnotes is produced by students at the PSU Department of History and is recorded in the studio of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org slash beyond footnotes and on SoundCloud. We are always interested to know what you guys think about the show. Please feel free to contact the Beyond Footnotes team on Facebook, Twitter, or email at beyondfootnotes at gmail.com with any comments, questions, or suggestions concerning the podcast. For previous episodes and extended content, check out kpsu.org beyondfootnotes or SoundCloud. And don't forget to share. Tell a friend, subscribe, rate, and follow the show on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you.
2: Live long and prosper.